0: The three great prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, each place a particular emphasis upon a different person of the Godhead. For example, when you're reading through the prophecy of Isaiah, you will be aware that Isaiah makes much of the, God, of the person of God the Son, of the obedient servant of Jehovah who was supposed to come. And Isaiah, often called the the, the fifth gospel sometimes, the evangelical prophet, because of his references to the coming Messiah and to that great work of redemption. And who can forget a portion like Isaiah chapter 53 that sets forth the Son of God as the suffering Savior. When we come to Jeremiah, it's the person of God the Father that that particular prophet emphasizes. As he sets out and warns the people and justifies God's dealings with his people, he's speaking about God the Father and his dealings with men and women, his dealings with his own people, even when he will chasten them because of their departure and their backsliding and their turning away from the Lord. And then when we come to Ezekiel, where we are this evening, Ezekiel makes much of the person of the Spirit of God. It's interesting to notice that there are at least. 25 direct references in the book of Ezekiel to the Spirit of God. From the Spirit entering into Ezekiel the prophet himself in chapter 2 and verse 2, right on through to the Spirit taking, taking Ezekiel up and bringing him in the vision to the inner court. You'll read of that in chapter 43 verse 5. In between those two references, there's those many direct references to the Spirit of God and him working in the prophet and and in the people as the Lord fulfills his promises and his His purposes. So it's very interesting to notice how those three prophets are to be considered alongside each other. Now Ezekiel himself was of the priestly tribe but he was taken captive and taken away into the land of captivity and he can't function there as a priest but in the land of captivity the Lord raises him up as a prophet and what a mighty prophet he is. And although this book may seem to be a difficult book on the surface to understand. And it might seem that there are so many visions and what is it that the prophet is saying? What is the message that is being conveyed to the reader as we come to the prophecy of Ezekiel? There is one theme that runs right the whole way through this book. One single theme that you can look out for again and again and again as... You read through this book because there's a little phrase that appears 63 times in this prophecy. And surely that's something to pick up on and it would give us an insight and even a direction, a key to understanding what the prophecy of Ezekiel is all about. 63 times there is a phrase that appears in this prophecy. I'm not thinking about those three words, son of man, because they appear quite often in the prophecy of Ezekiel as well. Ninety-three times, in fact, you'll find those three words, son of man, uh, in the book of Ezekiel. But that's not what I am thinking about. I'm thinking about more of a little phrase that appears. Now, it changes form slightly in, in a number of places, but basically it remains the same in all of those 63 places where it occurs. And here is what you need to look out for. It will start with either they or ye or the heathen or thou. And then here are the words to take note of. Shall know that I am the Lord. They shall know that I am the Lord. Ye shall know that I am the Lord. The heathen shall know that I am the Lord. And even then more personally to Ezekiel himself. Thou shalt know that I am the Lord. So that's the phrase that we need to look out for again and again as we come to the prophecy of Ezekiel and seek to understand what it is that this prophet is saying to us. That's what the message of this book is. This prophecy is designed by God to strengthen the faith of saints as we consider the Lord's power and dominion made known. Ezekiel's name comes from the verb to strengthen. Strengthened of the Lord. And here's, The key to understanding this prophecy, there are words here, this this whole prophecy is designed to strengthen the faith of saints as we consider the Lord making himself known. Don't we often pray that, that the Lord would make himself known? That we pray the Lord would come among his people in these times and make himself known, show himself to be a God that he would rise up and plead his own cause in this day and age in which we live. We pray along those lines. Well, here's a book that is all about that one theme. The Lord making himself known. one, not only to the prophet. Not only one to the children of Israel. But one to the heathen as well. The ungodly are going to know that he is the Lord. Now with that in mind, there's a, a threefold division that you notice in this book. Keeping in mind that, that little phrase. The Lord is going to make himself known. Well, how does that come about? Well, in three ways. First of all, if we take chapters 4 to 24, the first three chapters of the prophecy are about the calling of Ezekiel and the charging of him to be a prophet to the people. So if we start off there from chapter 4 where the visions begin. And if we go right through to to chapter 24, there is the first section. Twenty-nine times that phrase is repeated in those chapters. And in those chapters you will find the Lord chastising Israel for their departure from the true and living God. Chapters 4 to 24. Twenty-nine times that phrase appears in one form or another. Ye shall know that I am the Lord. And the Lord will show himself to be the God of heaven by chastening Israel for their departure from him. He is not going to turn a blind eye to sin and to backsliding and to departure from God. He never does that. He won't do that today either. We live in a day of coldness and carelessness and carnality among many who profess the Lord's name. Well, do not be surprised if the Lord chastens his people for coldness and carnality and backsliding and turning away from the Lord. Because the Lord has given us the example of it in his word. And in those chapters, chapter 4 to 24, he's emphasizing that truth. And connected with that particular section of chastising Israel is the departure of the glory of the Lord from the temple and from Jerusalem itself. So there's this connection that that you notice as well. The Lord's making himself known. And he's going to make himself known that he is displeased and he will not dwell among those who depart from him and who turn in, uh, turn aside to the world and follow after the things of the world. And in chapter 10 verses 4 and verse 8 and then in chapter 11 again in verse 23 you read about the glory of the Lord departing from the temple and then going out to the mountain and then leaving the mountain altogether, leaving Jerusalem. And Israel are a people that are bereft of the Lord's presence. That ancient people who had the Lord's presence, the Shekinah glory was among them, it filled the tabernacle. It even before the tabernacle, it was there in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, as they came out of, of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea and went to Sinai. But there came a time when they lost the visible presence of the Lord. And that is shown to Ezekiel in the visions in those chapters. As the Lord is making himself known that he is a God who will indeed chastise where there is a need to chastise. And his presence is lost. And then there is the second of these sections. I said there were three of them. The second of them runs from chapter 25 through to chapter 32. Eighteen times you will find that little phrase in those chapters. That the Lord is going to make himself known. And in those chapters 25 to 32 you will find the Lord judging the seven Gentile nations for never recognizing him as God. And also for their ill treatment of Israel. Seven nations near to Israel. There's the nation of Ammon, Moab, Edom, the Philistines, Tyre and Zidon and then Egypt. Seven of them. And in those chapters 25 to 32, you will find the Lord dealing with those seven nations and pronouncing judgment upon them. It's as if the Lord is, is like a judge, making a, a circle of the of the nations and pronouncing his judgment upon them. And here is the glory of the Lord acting in the defense of Israel. For he has never forgotten his people. Oh, he might be displeased with them, but he has not forgotten them. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. And though he is displeased with them, though he has withdrawn his presence from them, and though from then until this very day there is no sense of the Lord's presence among them, they are still the Lord's ancient people. And he has not forgotten them. And he will deal with those nations round about Israel who have never acknowledged him or recognized him as God, but also he will deal with them for their ill treatment of Israel as a nation. And then we come to the third of these three sections from chapter 33 through to the end of the book. And what you have here is the Lord making himself known by restoring Israel back into covenant blessing and into covenant fellowship. Sixteen times that little phrase appears in these chapters, although it doesn't appear after chapter 9. in in this particular section, but 16 times it appears in the latter part of, of the book. Again, the Lord is making himself known. As I said, he has not forgotten his people. He is married to them, though they have forgotten him days without number. The Lord has not forgotten them, and he will restore them, and he will bring them back into covenant blessing and covenant fellowship with himself. And the interesting point is that this this particular section details for us the return of the glory of the Lord. Chapter 43 and verse 4, it says, And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate, whose prospect is toward the east. So Ezekiel saw the glory of God departing. As the Lord chastened his people for their forgetfulness of the Lord and turning away from the Lord. He saw it leave Jerusalem. And then in the vision much, much later, he sees it returning. The glory of the Lord comes again. But the glory of God returning is in that section that deals with Israel being restored. Restored to covenant blessing and covenant fellowship. Chapters 33 to 48. And there again you will find the Lord making himself known. So there's those three simple sections that you can look out for in the book of Ezekiel. We're, we're not going to be dealing with the first two of them. We're going to deal a little with the last one here uh, for the, the time remaining to me this evening. But it is important that, that you look for that three full simple division in the book of Ezekiel. And sometimes, maybe along with Leviticus, Le- Ezekiel is one of the, the harder books to understand. And people get, get taken up with the detail and maybe get even swamped with the, the details that are in an individual chapter and, and miss out the overall picture and what it is the, what is the theme of this book. What is the, the lesson that the Lord is teaching? What is he revealing unto us in this book? Well, if you keep in mind as you read the book of Ezekiel that it's to, about the Lord making himself known that he is God and beside him there is none other. And look out for that little phrase, as I say, 63 times it appears. 63 times it appears. So it's going to be coming up very, very often as you read through the book of Ezekiel. I will make myself known. The heathen will know that I am the Lord. Ye shall know that I am the Lord. Even to the prophet, thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Oh, the Lord will declare himself to be Jehovah God. And he will do it by chastening Israel chapters 4 to 24 He will do it by judging the seven Gentile nations for their ill treatment of Israel. And then, chapters 33 to the end, he's going to make himself known by restoring Israel. And it's those closing chapters that I want to to draw your attention to, at least in some degree this evening. As you appreciate, we're not going to cover these chapters in any great detail. How could we? Chapters 33 to 48, there's so much in those chapters but again, what I want us to, to have a, is at least an overview of these chapters. At least some understanding well, well, what it is that the Lord is saying here to us in these particular chapters. The first thing that I want you to consider is the sequence of events that are outlined in this third section of the book of Ezekiel. So we're thinking about chapters 33 to, through to 48. So what is the sequence of events that are being outlined and I I trust that as we as we have a an overview of this, that as we we think about this as as a, a panoramic view of it, we will understand something of what is is being said to us. We're not going to focus so much on on particular details, although we we will come to one particular detail here in a a moment. But in this particular point, I I want us to think about the sequence of events. And as we do so, remember that application is not interpretation. We should never confuse the two or conflate the two. They're they're very separate. And that's the mistake that that many make in, in any portion of Scripture, and certainly in portions that deal with the second coming. There is a tendency to mix up and confuse application and interpretation. There there are many ways whereby you can apply a particular uh, scripture, a verse, a a portion, a chapter, a book. You you can apply the the Word of God in, in many ways, but the Word of God has only got one particular interpretation. It means one thing. Though it may have many applications, Yet it means one thing. It doesn't mean a whole lot of different things. It doesn't mean a whole lot of contradictory things. The Scriptures mean one thing. And it is our responsibility by the help of the Lord, and the Spirit of God, to seek out what that interpretation of the Scripture is. So it's very important that we understand what is being said. What is the, what is the interpretation here of these chapters? What is it that the Lord is, is conveying to us? Then... You can apply it in in various scenarios and various circumstances. So it's important that we do more than just take application out of the book of Ezekiel. Many people do that, but what we're seeking to do tonight is to understand what it is that is being taught to us here in the the Word of God. There, so we're going to we're going to work through here uh, a few points. Uh, and seek to summarize this sequence of events. And if we start at chapter 33, this section, as I say, runs from chapter 33 through to 48, the last chapter. So if we start at chapter 33, there is in that chapter the Lord's justification of what he has and what he will yet do with his ancient people. That's the Lord's starting point. What he does, he sets out there, and why he does it in chapter 33. And then if we come into chapter 34, and this portion, uh, well a part of it was read uh, this evening, but if we come into this this chapter from which our Bible reading was taken uh, this evening, then the first part of it, verses 1 to 10, deal with the Lord denouncing the false shepherds. And the rest of the chapter, verses 11 on to the end, deal with the Lord promising that he will personally be a shepherd to Israel. That he will personally be a shepherd to Israel. And you can start there uh, and notice uh, verse 11. For thus saith the Lord God Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeketh out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. And if you follow on down through those subsequent verses, you will find the Lord stating that he indeed is going to be a shepherd to uh, this people. He's going to be a shepherd. For example, if we come down to verse 23 of chapter 34. And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. Even my servant David, he shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken it. So that particular chapter is dealing with the Lord denouncing the false shepherds, and then turning our attention to the the true shepherd. And the true shepherd, as we will come to see, is indeed the beloved son. He will be their shepherd king. So there is the promise of the shepherd of Israel who will come. And then if we move along to the next stage, this personal return of the beloved son, because in order to shepherd Israel, he's going to be among them, he says there in those uh, verses that we read. Uh, in in verse 12 if you go back there as a shepherd seeketh out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered so the Lord is among them so we're thinking about his coming that's a a, a portion about his coming into the world a second time so he's going to be among his sheep he's going to seek them out he's going to be a shepherd to them well what, what does that entail? well it entails a national restoration to the Lord and to the land That will take you on to chapter 36 and some of those great statements that are found in that particular chapter. For example, verse 26, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Those words are often used to define what regeneration is. The Lord is going to bring about a, a work of regeneration and restoring this nation unto himself. There's going to be this work of grace that is wrought in hearts where the Lord will take away the stony heart and give the heart of flesh. He will give the heart of flesh. There's going to be a national restoration to the Lord and also to the land. Israel are going to become a potent instrument in the hand of God. That will take you on to chapter 37, the chapter of the the Valley of Dry Bones. That chapter is often taken to re- refer to revival and preached upon God reviving his, his church. But it's not about the church, it's about the nation of Israel. It says that. It specially speaks about the house of Judah. And in verse 10 of chapter 37, it says that they lived and that they stood upon their feet, an exceeding great army. A great army. Oh, a potent weapon in the hand of God, not to wage war but to be a force for God and a force for good in the earth. There was a time, ancient time, when Israel was indeed God's instrument of judgment in the earth. And you can go back to those times prior to the captivity where the Lord at times told Israel to go and to wage war against a particular nation. They were God's instrument of judgment. They are not God's instrument of judgment since the time of the captivity since the start of the times of the Gentiles. But they were prior to that. God's instrument of judgment in the earth. And that is why the Lord told them at certain times in their history to go and to make war against the nation and to utterly destroy nations. We need to understand those commands of God in the sense that the Lord was using Israel as his instrument of judgment. There's coming a day when he's going to use them again, but in a totally different way. Instead of being an instrument of judgment, they're going to be a missionary nation. They're going to be a missionary nation. They're going to take the truth to the nations. They're going to be a witness for the truth to the to the nations, and they're going to stand up an exceeding great army as they do so, because the Lord will come among them and so work. There's going to be, with regards to this. Uh, personal return of the Lord, the destruction of all Israel's enemies, past and future. That will take in chapter 35 and the Lord dealing with the Edomites or Mount Seir as the name is at the start of of Ezekiel chapter 35 and then it will also cover chapters 38 and chapter 39 where you read about uh, Gog, the prince, the chief prince called Gog and then the land of Magog. We're, We're not going to be able to deal with these chapters at any great length, other than mention them now here as we're, we're seeking to, to get an overview of what is happening. So the Lord has outlined what he's coming to do. He's coming to be the shepherd to Israel. He's coming to gather them, gather them into the land, restore them back unto himself. There's going to be a work of grace done in, in hearts. They're going to stand up a potent instrument in the hand of God. There's going to be the destruction of all their enemies. Oh, what a A time that will be when the Lord indeed comes and works in such a fashion. And then that brings us on to the closing chapters. Chapter 40 through to the end of the book. Chapter 40 to 43, there's the erection of the the new sanctuary, the new temple that is there described. As we've already mentioned about the return of the glory of the Lord. That's connected with the construction of that temple, that millennial temple. Ezekiel 43 and verse 4. We've already mentioned that verse and read you uh, the words out of that verse about the glory of the Lord returning by the way of the east. And that's to do with the, the, the new sanctuary, the new temple that's going to be erected. We read in, in chapter 44 about the prince, the prince who's going to enter into the city and into the temple. The prince is mentioned there over a dozen times, uh, not only in that chapter, but in the remaining chapters as as well. And that's a, a study all in itself. Who is the Prince? Well, chapter forty four tells us about the Prince. And then you have the division of the city of Jerusalem and the division of the land among the tribes. Chapter forty five through to chapter forty eight. Israel as a nation they're they're in the land they're in the land for a period of time that's why the land is going to be divided up among them there's no enemies, remember their enemies are going to be defeated they're going to be a people for the Lord, but they're going to be in the land they're going to be there in the land and the land is is divided up so there's the division of the of the of the city and of the land. We can we can mention there as well the life giving waters flowing out of Jerusalem. That's in chapter forty seven, and what happens it ties in a little bit with what we were thinking about uh, this afternoon, and those physical changes that are going to take place in in the earth when the Lord re- returns. And what a what a depiction there! The physical is a is a an illustration of the spiritual. Water running out from the temple in Jerusalem, becoming a a mighty torrent and all the, the vegetation and the, and the growth that there is as you follow along the water course. And there you have a, a, a physical illustration set before our very eyes of what the Lord is going to do spiritually when he comes. There's going to go out from Jerusalem his, his law and there's going to go out a knowledge of the Lord across the face of the earth. And it will be for the good of all who are upon the earth. It will bring a blessed time. So there, there's, a, there's a, a sequence of events that are, are covered here in this portion. These last chapters, 33 right through to chapter 48. There's a sequence of events that are laid out before us there. And it's important to, to keep them in mind. That brings us on to the second thing that I want us to to consider. And that is the timing of these events. The timing of these events. Has all this come to pass? If not, then when is it going to come to pass? Well, what we are brought to observe here is that all of these events are centered around the coming again of Jesus Christ to the earth. That's what all of these events are centered around. The Lord is not the author of confusion, and there is no confusion when we accept the plain teaching of of the Scriptures. This whole section of the book of Ezekiel, which... As we have been thinking, the purpose is that the Lord makes himself known. It commences with the return of Jesus Christ. And that's why this portion of scripture that has been read uh, this evening, chapter 34, verses 11 through to 31, is a, is a key portion. An absolutely key portion to understanding What it is that is being set before us. Because we are brought here to understand that the Lord is coming. And here is his second coming set before us. And everything else that happens in these chapters is happening in connection with his second coming. We want to take a moment and and consider some of these things. I want you to look there first of all. Chapter 34 verses 11 to 16. And we've already read some of these uh, verses to you, but (coughs) the Lord is declaring his purpose here for his ancient people. There is going to be a double return of Israel. A return to the land and a return to the Lord. A return to the the land and a return to the Lord. There is mention made here about the Lord searching for his sheep. As a shepherd would search for the lost sheep, he says, for example, there right in the very middle of verse 12, so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. As we know, there's a scattering of of the Jews that have taken place. They're a scattered nation. Oh, there's some of them tonight in the land of, of Israel, but there's still so many of them scattered all over the face of the earth. When the Lord comes back, he says, "I'm, I'm going to gather them. I'm going to gather them. They're going to be gathered into the land. If you look at verse 13, I will bring them out of the people and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture and upon the high mountain of Israel shall their fold be. They're going to be gathered back into the land. So there's going to be this double return. This return to the land and this return to the Lord. What a glorious time that will be. So this, this, this section here is about his coming. This, this sits right at the very beginning of this particular section. And from here, all the way through, we're going to be thinking about all of those events that are are mentioned and highlighted are all to be looked at and considered in connection with this. The Lord is coming. He's coming to the land of Israel. Oh, he's going to be among them. And he's going to be a shepherd. He's going to gather them out of the lands where they've been scattered. And he's going to gather them into the land of Israel. But he's also going to bring them back unto himself. And when you come down to verse 23... On down to the end of the chapter, there's some key verses there as well. We've we've already read to you a little of these. And both this evening and this afternoon we've made reference to uh, this portion. But there's this setting forth of of the shepherd and who he is. He's going to be my servant David. He's going to be the beloved son. That's who the shepherd is. God's own dear son is here in view we're, we're looking here at the the coming again of Jesus Christ all of these these words chapter 34 verse 11 right through to the end here's a portion that has to do with the coming again of Jesus Christ do you notice for example in verse 25 I will make with them a covenant of peace Israel doesn't know their messiah they're still rejecting Jesus of Nazareth. But there's going to be a covenant of peace that's going to be made. They're going to recognize him. The Lord's going to recognize them. They're going to be his people. They're going to be his people. And if you look at verse 30, and here's this little phrase in one of the places where it appears, Thus shall they know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, even the house." Of Israel are my people, saith the Lord, and ye my flock, the flock of my pasture and man, and I am your God, saith the Lord God. Oh they're going to know the Lord, they're going to know the Lord. So there is here at the very heart of of this, this whole section, there is at the very heart of this, the coming again of of the Lord Jesus. So, everything that is here is connected with his coming again. If you turn over to chapter 36 there, and I want you to to consider some of these verses, particularly verse 24 and onwards. Maybe we'll just take time and and read these uh, few verses. Ezekiel 36, 24, For I will take you from among the heathen, and gather you out of all countries, and will bring you into your own land. Well, that's what we've already been saying, but here's what I want you to notice. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, a new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep Keep my judgments and do them, and ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. Oftentimes people take the three verses in between, 25, 26, 27. And as I say, they apply them in a particular way. Sometimes those words are applied to to regeneration. And why not? They are indeed a wonderful illustration of regeneration because that's exactly what has been set before us there. But they, they, they miss out verse 25 and 28. And verse twenty five, or Verse 24 says there that he's going to gather them from among the heathen and gather them out of all countries and bring them into their own land. He's going to bring them into their own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you. What's in view here is this people who are gathered out of all of these countries, gathered out from among the heathen, brought into their own land. This work of regeneration is going to take place in their hearts and lives. And then verse 28 as well. Ye shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers and ye shall be my people and I will be your God. As I say many times people forget forget those two verses either side. And just take out those two, three verses 25, 26 and 27 and apply them in various ways. That's why I started off by saying it's important to understand the interpretation of the portion. What is it that's being said here? And what we have in view is what the Lord is going to do when he comes. When he comes to Israel the second time. And therefore everything else that follows on from this, we are to look at it in connection with the coming of the Lord or subsequent to the coming of the Lord. That is how we are to to look at these events. There's there's a logical sequence of events that follows on. And we've, we've already tried to give you an overview of all of those chapters there, starting out. So now we want to focus particularly on this point. The Saviour is coming. That's what Ezekiel is saying here. This is how the Lord is going to make himself known. He's going to bring his own shepherd, his own dear son, his beloved one among them. They're go- he's going to gather them. And he's going to bring them unto himself in regeneration. And then all of these other events are going to take place. For example, the raising up of Israel as an exceeding great army. There in chapter 37 takes place after this. Takes place after Christ's return. Takes place after he has brought them back to himself. They can't be an exceeding great army any other way. They can't be an instrument in the hand of God. None of us can be an instrument in the hand of God until a work of rest, re- regeneration has taken place in our hearts. Only then can we belong to the Lord. Only then can we be in his hand. And if we've never been redeemed and regenerated, we're not the Lord's tonight. And we can never be the Lord's until that work of grace takes place in our hearts and lives. So Israel standing up as an exceeding great army happens subsequent to the coming of the Lord. The destruction of Israel's enemies in chapter 38 and chapter 39 happens subsequent to the coming of the Lord. The activity of the prince happens subsequent to the coming of the Lord. The erection of the temple and what happens in that temple takes place subsequent to the coming of the Lord. The division of the land and of the city. The waters that flow out of Jerusalem. The name that is given to Jerusalem there. At the very end of the book, Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. All of that is subsequent to the coming of the Lord. And yet how many people read the book of Ezekiel and miss that important point? I don't know how you could ever understand the book of Ezekiel if you miss that point. That these things are connected with the coming of the Lord or subsequent to the coming of the Lord. I don't know how you could understand the book of Ezekiel. It's no wonder that sometimes people find the book of Ezekiel to be a maze. And they lose their way in it. And they don't understand what it is that the prophet is saying and why is he saying it. Because they fail to see that the coming of the Lord is integral to this. And it is only when we set that down and understand that here in these portions that were read tonight and we've been mentioning briefly. It's only when we understand these things then can we understand the, the events that take place thereafter. But then there's some people who don't want to acknowledge That there's events that take place after the coming of the Lord. That it's not the end of the world, it's just the end of the age and there's a difference. There's a difference, men and women. The end of the age is not the end of the world. There is a difference. There is coming the end of this age that we are in at present. That age will come to pass when Jesus Christ appears a second time. But that is not the end of the world. That is not the end of the world. The world will continue. There are events that will take place after the coming and subsequent to the coming of Jesus Christ. And it's important that we are aware of those events and take notice of them. That is the only way we can understand the book of Ezekiel. If we set this most important point down first... And establish it and understand it that there in chapter 34 and a little in chapter 36 as well. There is this coming of the Lord and his gathering of his people unto himself. The the people of Israel and there's going to be a holy people in a holy land. And then all of these events will fall into place subsequent to that. Now what I want to come in the last place this evening to consider are the problems that are highlighted with these events. These events that are mentioned here, subsequent to the coming of the Lord, there's, there's some problems that people uh, bring up. Some of them bring them up sincerely. Others bring them up with just a desire to reject what it is that the Word of God is, is teaching here. And they think that that will give them a, a good reason for rejecting that this is subsequent to the coming of the Lord. Well, I want us to to think a little bit about those things for a moment. The first objection that is often made and the first problem that we need to consider is the argument that the present typography of the land of Israel does not allow a division of the land and the water running out of the temple and out of the city as it is described in these chapters. And it is true, the present layout of the land, the topography of the land of Israel does not allow this. As it is described here in these closing chapters of Ezekiel. And we're not going to turn up every place. But if you're familiar with these chapters, you will be aware of the waters flowing out and so on. Well, the present layout of the land is is not indeed going to permit that to happen. And then you see the argument follows that if, if this is so, that the present layout of the, the land of Israel doesn't permit this to happen in a... A literal sense, therefore, we're to understand these chapters figuratively and allegorically and we're to understand them in this fashion and apply them to the gospel going out and so on. Is it not important to notice what the Bible has to actually say about the physical earth at the time of the coming of the Lord? Maybe if we understood that, then there wouldn't be a problem with what is recorded for us here in the closing chapters of Ezekiel. For example, the physical area around about Jerusalem is is going to undergo a tremendous physical change that will make these things possible. Let me explain a little of that. Turn over to Zechariah chapter 14, please. And you will find in Zechariah chapter 14 that we are told here about what is going to happen to the Mount of Olives. On the day of Christ's return. It's verse 4. Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 4. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley. The half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. So there's going to be this great physical change. There's going to be this massive earthquake, the Bible tells us. And there's going to be this opening up of this great rift valley. Half of the mountain is going to move towards the the north. Half of it's going to to move towards the south. And there's going to be a valley running east to west. That's what Zechariah 14 and verse 4 tells us. Will Will that not facilitate the waters running out of Jerusalem down to the Dead Sea? And wherever else they're going to run, will that not facilitate it? There's going to be a tremendous change. So you can't look at the land of Israel tonight and say, "Oh, it doesn't. It doesn't work out at the present time. Therefore, these these chapters can't be taken literally, and they have to be understood figuratively." Furthermore, to compensate that great. Massive movement of the mountain north and south. There's going to be a massive uplifting of the whole area north and south of Jerusalem. Stay with Zechariah 14 and look at verse 10. It says, All the land shall be turned as a plain from Gibeah to Rimmon south of Jerusalem, and it shall be lifted up and inhabited in her place, from Benjamin's gate unto the place of the first gate, unto the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel unto the king's winepress. The land shall be turned as a plain, it says. There's going to be this. It shall be lifted up, verse 10 says, and inhabited. There's going to be this massive lifting up of the physical earth to compensate for that movement, that splitting of the mountain and it moving north and south. There's going to be this massive uplifting of the whole area. There's other portions of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 2 will indicate the very same thing and it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be exalted in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. There's going to be a physical uplifting of the earth round about Jerusalem. And those changes that are going to take place will adequately explain the different topography that there is mentioned here in Ezekiel's vision. And those things that he says will come to pass. The water flowing out right down to the the Dead Sea is going to come to pass because of those physical changes. There's another problem to deal with, at least to consider. Mightn't have all the answers, but we will seek to consider. And that's the nature of the worship in the Millennial Temple. And particularly the point, will there be animal sacrifices reinstated? in a rebuilt temple at Jerusalem. For many, this is the clinching argument as to why they reject any literal fulfillment of these chapters. They're aghast at the thought of this. They're aghast at the thought that there would be the reinstitution of, of animal sacrifices. And that's why then they say, there is no way, this is, this is totally impossible of it being anything literal. This has to be understood figuratively. Well, let's adopt the, the principle of Of Scripture interpreting Scripture. Are there any other references to the same thing happening? Well, if you've got Zechariah chapter 14 open before you still, I want you to look at verse 16 of this chapter. Look at verse 16. Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 16. It shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. To keep the Feast of Tabernacles. What does that involve? The keeping of the Feast of Tabernacles? What do you understand the keeping of the Feast of Tabernacles to mean? How is the the Feast of Tabernacles kept in Israel? There's going to be after the coming of the Lord, because the coming of the Lord is in in verse 4. Of this chapter, chapter 14 of Zechariah, the Lord has come, his feet shall touch the Mount of Olives. As we've been thinking, there's going to be this massive splitting of the mountain, north and south. And on through this chapter, you can pick up on on various aspects. For example, verse 9, the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day there shall be one Lord in his name, one That ties in very much with this theme of Ezekiel that we've been thinking that the Lord is going to make himself known. He's going to make himself known as the one Lord and the one God and the one King over all the earth. But then when we come down to verse 16, we read about those who are left. Those who are left of the nations which have come against Jerusalem. And they're going to go from year to year. That's why I mentioned a moment or two ago that The end of the age is not the end of the world. There's going to be time after the coming of the Lord. And here in verse 16 it speaks about year after year. This is not for a few days. This is not even for a few weeks or for a few months. This is not even for 12 months. This is year after year. This is going to happen. And they're going to come up and they're going to worship the Lord. And they're going to keep the Feast of Tabernacles it says. So the point I'm making is that Ezekiel is not unique. It's not a one-off in Ezekiel. So if you're going to reject Ezekiel and you're going to say, oh, these chapters can't be literal because there's the possibility of sacrifices being reinstituted, then what are you going to do with Zechariah 14? Are you going to reject this chapter as well? Are we going to start and, and say, well, there's parts of it here are literal? Oh, maybe none of it's literal. Maybe you're going to have to reject it all and say, well, the Lord's not even going to stand on the Mount of Olives. If they're not going to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, and this is going to have to be spiritualized away and understood in some other form. Zechariah and Ezekiel are of the same mind. They're speaking about the same thing that's going to happen after the coming of the Lord in a different age, in a new age. And what would hinder the Lord from instituting a feast? Not as a type pointing forward, for if it was a type pointing forward, then that would indeed be a denial of the work of Jesus Christ, and rightly so would we be alarmed at it and reject it. But if what was, but what if Christ instituted something that was commemorative, pointing backwards, in a new age, can He not do as He pleases? Just in the same way as we come into the New Testament age and the sacrifice completely ceased, and there was the institution of the Lord's Supper. In, in the in the New Testament age? Can there not be something entirely different in the millennial age? Can the Lord not do as he pleases? Oh time will time will tell. Time will indeed tell. But I, I would finish off with, with these few thoughts. There there's other problems you see in, in the chapters in Ezekiel to, to deal with as well. Because what what was promised to the Jews here? What was promised? Because there has to be something promised to the Jews here that, that was actually tangible. And what it was is worth noticing, or more to the point, what's missing? You see, there's no Ark of the Covenant mentioned in Ezekiel's temple. There's people who get hung up with the thought of sacrifices. Well, Well, what about the fact that there is a temple here described with no Ark of the Covenant? That great representation of Jesus Christ... Is that not equally alarming? Is that not equally of notice and worthy of consideration? Why is this the case of all the minute details and the intricate recording that there is here by Ezekiel of this temple? Why is there no mention of the Ark of the Covenant? Why is there no veil mentioned in Ezekiel's temple? Why is there no candlestick and no lampstand? Why is there no day of atonement? Why is there no high priest that is mentioned in Ezekiel's temple? Why are all of these things missing are these things all representative of Christ? And he is going to be there. All of those things that are so much tied with Jesus Christ are not going to be there because Christ is there in person. Is not where how this chapter 48, this book, finishes off with those words. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. That's why there's no Ark of the Covenant and no veil, no candlestick, no Day of Atonement. No high priest, because the Lord is there. The Lord is going to be there in that temple, in that city. It's interesting to notice as well that there are steps in Ezekiel's temple that were forbidden in the tabernacle. Exodus twenty twenty six: Neither shalt thou go up by steps unto mine altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered. And yet we find that there's, there are steps here mentioned in Ezekiel's temple. But do you, know, do you, do you notice, and with this I, I, I conclude, chapter 48 and verse, verse 10, if you would look there at that, that verse, and you will find that the sanctuary, the location of this temple that Ezekiel describes, is actually outside the city. Actually outside the city. It is in the portion, or the oblation, as the term is, allotted for sacred purposes. Let's read chapter 48 of Ezekiel in verse 10. And for them even for the priests shall this uh, shall be this holy oblation towards the north 5 and 20,000 in length and toward the west 10,000 in breadth and toward the east 10,000 in breadth and toward the south 20 and 5,000 in length and the sanctuary of the Lord shall be in the midst thereof. So there is this area that is described here. It's called the oblation that is given over for sacred purposes. And we're told that Ezekiel's temple is actually going to be in the midst of this area. It's not going to be on Temple Mount. It's going to be in a different location. But all of those points that we have noticed here are worth considering. There's something unique about this temple. Fitted for the age in which it is going to be built and used, in the millennial age, after Christ returns. And I trust that as we consider these things, that the Lord might bless his word and challenge our hearts even through it. Oh, the Lord will show himself to be God. Of that there is no doubt. And what a glorious day and what a glorious time that will be when he comes in power and great glory. I trust what we've had to say tonight is profitable. In many cases, we have just skimmed over the surface here because of so much content that there is in these uh, chapters and trying to get it into to one message. And I trust the Lord will bless his word nevertheless.